1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So chapter 7 is going to begin a section where Paul is going to deal with specific questions asked him in a letter that was written by the Corinthian Christians. Here, touch is used in the sense of having sexual relations. This is probably a statement made by the Corinthian Christians when they asked Paul to, uh, which they asked Paul to agree with. Paul will agree with the statement, but with the reservation, nevertheless, of verse 2. So why would the Corinthian Christians suggest complete celibacy, which is what they mean by a man not to touch a woman? They probably figured that if sexual immorality was such a danger, then one could be more pure by abstaining from sex altogether, even in marriage. And so in light of the danger of sexual immorality ever present within the Corinthian culture and our own today, it is appropriate for a husband and a wife to have each other in a sexual sense. Paul is not commanding the Corinthian Christians to get married, an issue he's going to deal with later in the chapter, but a command to live as a married person, especially in a sexual sense. Paul means that husbands and wives should continue in sexual relations. And so Paul is not saying sex is the only reason for marriage or the most important reason for marriage. Paul is simply answering the specific questions about marriage, not trying to give a complete theology on marriage. If you want to see a more complete theology of marriage, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33, which will say, Submitting to one another in the fear of Lord, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church that he gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. And you can look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, where it will say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. All right, verses 3 through 6. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with a consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this, as a concession, not as a commandment. So instead of a man not to touch a woman within the marriage, a husband must render to his wife the affection due her. It's wrong for him to withhold affection from his wife. And the affection due her is an important phrase. Since Paul meant this to apply to every Christian marriage, it shows that every wife has affection that's due her. Paul doesn't think that only the young or pretty or submissive wives are due affection. Every wife is due affection because she is a wife of a Christian man. Paul also is going to emphasize what the woman needs, not just sexual relations, but the affection due her. If a husband has sexual relations with his wife, but without true affection towards her, he's not giving his wife what she is due. Affection also reminds us that... When a couple is unable, for physical or other reasons, to have a complete sexual relationship, they can still have an affectionate relationship and thus fulfill God's purpose for these commands. 
on the same idea also the wife to her husband the wife is not to withhold marital affection from her husband Paul strongly puts forth the idea that there is a mutual sexual responsibility in the marriage the husband has obligations towards his wife and the wife has obligations towards her husband so render to his wife the emphasis is on giving an IOU instead of a you owe me in God's heart sex is put on a much higher level than merely the husband's privilege and the wife's duty in fact these obligations are so concrete it could be said that the wife's body doesn't even belong to herself but to her husband the same principle is true of the husband's body in regard to his wife this does not justify a husband abusing or coercing his wife sexually or otherwise Paul's point here is that we have a binding obligation to serve our partner with physical affection. And this is an awesome obligation. Out of the billions of people that are on the planet, God has chosen one and one alone to meet our sexual needs. There is to be no one else. And Paul's going to reject the idea that husband and wife could be more holy by sexual abstinence. In fact, harm can come when they deprive one another as they open the door to the tempter so that Satan does not tempt you. The word for deprive is the same as defraud in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. When we deny physical affection and sexual intimacy to our spouse, we cheat them. Plain and simple. Sexual deprivation in the marriage has not only to do with frequency, but with romance also. And this is why Paul tells the husbands to render to his wife the affection that's due her. Deprivation in either sense gives occasion for the deprived to look elsewhere for fulfillment and to destroy the marriage. And so that lack of self-control. So it might be easy to think that self-control is expressed by abstaining from sexual relations in the marriage. But Paul says that to, de to deprive one another is to show a lack of self-control and a lack of self-control that will leave one easily tempted by Satan. And so... God will permit, reluctantly, as a concession, a married couple to abstain from sexual relations for a short time for the sake of fasting and prayer. But if this concession is used, it's only to be for a time, and then husband and wife must come together again in a sexual sense. And God does not command or even recommend abstaining from sex within marriage. It can be done for a brief time and for a specific spiritual reason. The principle in this passage is important. God makes it clear that there is nothing wrong and everything right about sex and marriage. Satan's great strategy when it comes to sex is to do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and to discourage sex within the marriage. So it's an equal victory for Satan if he accomplishes either plan. And so this can be seen in the way that some of the Corinthian Christians thought it was just fine to hire the services of a prostitute, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And other Corinthian Christians thought it was more spiritual for a husband and wife to never have spiritual relations. And so a, a Christian husband and a wife must not accept a poor sexual relationship. The problems may not be easily overcome or quickly solved. But God wants every Christian marriage to enjoy a sexual relationship that is a genuine blessing instead of a burden or a curse. Verse 7 through 9. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, at the time of this writing, Paul was unmarried, putting himself among the unmarried and the widows. Here he recognizes the benefit of being single, which he will speak more of later in the letter. 
And though Paul was unmarried when he wrote this letter, he had probably been married at one time. We can say this because we know that Paul was an extremely observant Jew, and he was an example among his people in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. In Paul's day, Jews considered marriage a duty to the extent that a man reaching 20 years of age without marrying was considered to be a sin. So unmarried men were often considered excluded from heaven and not real men at all. Also, by Paul's own words, it's likely that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul says, I cast my vote against them, speaking of the early Christians. And the logical place that he would cast a vote is at the member of the great congress of the Jewish people. An unmarried man could not be a member of the Sanhedrin. So, Paul was probably married at one time. Which brings the question, so what happened to Paul's wife? Well, the scriptures are largely silent here. Perhaps she left him when he became a Christian and lost all that status. Or perhaps she died sometime before after he became a Christian. But we know that it was likely that he was married before. And we know that he was not married when he was writing this letter. And the book of Acts never shows Paul's wife. Paul was probably well qualified to speak of the relative gifts and responsibilities of both marriage and singleness because he knew both from his life experience. And though Paul knew singleness was good for him, he would not impose it on anybody else. The important thing is what gift one has from God, either being gifted to singleness or marriage. Significantly, Paul regards both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. Many people will find themselves in the grass is greener trap, with single people wishing they were married and married people wishing they were single. Each state is a gift from God. So to be single or married is a special gifting from God. When Paul writes his own gift, he uses the same word for spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Each state, married or single, needs special gifting from God to work. And so Paul's understanding that the unmarried state can be a gift is especially striking when we consider the Jewish background of Paul himself in the early church, right, where it was regarded as a sin for a Jewish man to be unmarried. And so while Paul recognizes that some are gifted for marriage and some are gifted for the unmarried state, no one is gifted for sexual immorality. The married one must live faithfully to their spouse, and the unmarried must live celibate. So Paul's recommendation to marry is not based on marriage being more or less spiritual, but on very practical concerns, especially relevant to his day, as explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26, 29, and 32. A godly sexual relationship within the covenant of marriage is God's plan for meeting our sexual needs. And though Paul preferred the unmarried state for himself, he doesn't want anybody to think that being married was less spiritual or more spiritual for that matter. It's all according to an individual's gifting. Remember that Paul told Timothy that forbidding to marry was a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. And so Paul was aware how powerfully a counterfeit show of purity deceives the godly. And Paul recognizes marriage as a legitimate refuge from pressures of sexual immorality. One should not feel that they are immature or unspiritual because they desire to get married so they'll no longer burn with passion. And Paul is not speaking about what we might consider normal sexual temptation. Uh, it's one thing to burn, another to feel heat. But what Paul calls burning here is not just a slight sensation, but being so aflame with passion that you can't stand against it. And so at the same time, if someone has a problem with lust or sexual sin, they should not think that getting married itself is going to solve their problems. There's many a Christian man has been grieved to find that his lust for other women did not magically go away when he got married. Verse 10 through 11. 
Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So remember that in this chapter, Paul's answering questions written to him from the Corinthian Christians. Um, he's already dealt with the questions about the relative merits of being married or single. And if it's more spiritual to abstain from sex in the marriage relationship, now to thee is going to indicate that he's moving to another question. And these questions and answers have to do with marriage and divorce. And so to the married. Here Paul is going to address marriages where both partners are Christians. He's going to deal with other situations in the following verses. And uh, the Corinthians wondered if it might be more spiritual to be single um, and if they should break up existing marriages for the cause of greater holiness. Paul answers their question straight from the heart of the Lord, absolutely not. And so Paul, in addressing a marriage where both partners are Christians, says that they should not, indeed cannot, break up the marriage in a misguided search for higher spirituality. In fact, if one was to depart from their spouse, they must either remain unmarried or be reconciled. Okay, and so this is going to connect with the two specific grounds under which God will recognize a divorce. When there is sexual immorality, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, Right? Is a law? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any, for just any reason? And he answered, said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then they'll go on and say, Why did Moses give a command for the certificate of divorce? And in verse 8, he'll say, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So, right, so <clears throat> God will recognize divorce when there is sexual immorality and when a believing partner is deserted by an unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, right? But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother and a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So on any other grounds, God will not recognize a divorce, even if the state does. If God does not recognize the divorce, then the individual is not free to remarry. They can only be reconciled to their former spouse. And so Jesus said, the one who divorces for invalid reasons and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, uh, when Jesus' disciples understood how binding the marriage covenant was and how it could not be broken in the sight of God for just any reason, they responded, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it's better not to marry, in Matthew 19, verse 10. They understood Jesus perfectly, and so should more people today before they enter into the covenant of marriage. Therefore, if a person says, God just doesn't want me to be married to this person anymore, or God brought someone better for me, uh, they are wrong and not speaking from God at all. God never recognizes a divorce for such reasons, period. And so, a Christian couple may in fact separate for reasons that do not justify a biblical divorce. It may be because of a misguided sense of spirituality. Uh, it could just be, from, in most cases, of general unhappiness or conflict, abuse, misery, addiction, or poverty. Uh, Paul recognizes, without at all encouraging, that one might depart in such a circumstance. 
but they cannot consider themselves divorced with the right to remarry because their marriage had not split up for reasons that justify a biblical divorce. These problems may perhaps justify a separation, depart, but the partners are expected to honor their marriage vows even in their separation, because as far as God is concerned, they are still married. Their marriage covenant has not been broken for what God considers to be biblical reasons. They may live as separate, but not single. So Paul is going to apply the same principle to husbands as to wives, and makes the important distinction between one who might depart separation while still honoring the marriage covenant, and one who might divorce, except for sexual immorality that Jesus describes in Matthew 19 verses 3 through 9, two Christians never have a valid reason for divorce. Just as importantly, Jesus never commands divorce in the case of sexual immorality. He carefully says it's permitted and that the permission was given because of the hardness of your hearts in Matthew 19 verse 8, verse 12 through 16. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So, But to the rest is going to indicate that Paul is shifting the focus from the group that's previously addressed, couples where both partners were Christians. Now he's going to speak to anybody that uh, any brother who has a wife that does not believe and to the woman who has a husband who does not believe. Uh, I, not the Lord, say. And so we should not think that Paul is any less inspired by the Holy Spirit on this point. When he says, not the Lord, he simply means that Jesus did not teach on this specific point, as he had in the previous situation, like Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. So if Jesus doesn't speak on this specific point, uh, then his inspired apostle will speak on it. And this is a clue that Paul may not have been conscious of the degree of inspiration he worked under as he wrote 1 Corinthians or perhaps the other letters. He simply knows, though, that he based his remarks on 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 on what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. Yet not I, but the Lord. He has no specific recorded command from Jesus in the case of a Christian married to an unbelieving spouse. He knew he wrote with God's authority to the Christians. But he might not have known he spoke with the authority to all the church in all ages and was used to pin God's eternal word. But if Paul was not aware of how inspired his words were, they are no less inspired because of that. And so if there were some Christian couples in the Corinthian church who thought they would be more spiritual if they divorced, which is addressed in verses 10 and 11, uh, what about the Corinthian Christians married to unbelievers? Certainly, thought the Christians, God can't be glorified if I'm married to an unbeliever. For the sake of spirituality, I should divorce them. To these, Paul says, let him not divorce her. The spiritual concern is a valid and urgent reason for not marrying an unbeliever in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. But it is not a reason for ending an existing marriage with an unbeliever. So why should a Christian try to keep their marriage to a non-Christian together? Because God can be glorified in such a marriage. He, can, he may do a work through the believing spouse to draw the unbelieving spouse to Jesus Christ. 
So sanctified in this context does not mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved just by being married to a Christian. It simply means that they're set apart for a special working in their lives by the Holy Spirit, by virtue of being so close to someone who is a Christian. And not only does a presence of a believing spouse do good for the unbelieving spouse, it also does good for the children, and very great good, because it can be said that now they are holy. And this is a beautiful assurance that the children of a Christian parent are saved, at least until they come into an age of personal accountability, which may differ for each child. Uh, however, we have no similar assurance for the children of parents who are not Christians. In fact, the sense of the text argues against it. How could Paul claim it as a benefit for a Christian parent to be in the home if the same benefit automatically applies to the children of non-Christians also? As well, Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean, clearly giving the sense that apart from the presence of a Christian parent, the child is not regarded as holy, rather as unclean. So if the children of non-Christian parents are saved and do go to heaven, even some of them, it is important to understand that it's not because they're innocent. As sons and daughters of guilty Adam, we are each and all born guilty. So if such, uh, if such children do go to heaven, it's not because they're deserving innocence, but because of the rich mercy of God has been extended to them as well. Okay, So Paul has counseled that a Christian partner should do what they can to keep the marriage together. But if the unbelieving spouse refuses to be married, then the marriage can be broken. And this isn't to be initiated or sought by the believer. And so if the unbelieving spouse should depart, the Christian is not under bondage to the marriage covenant. This means they are, in fact, free to remarry because God has recognized their divorce as a valid divorce. And Paul's going to end this section with a great deal of hope because many Christians who are married to unbelievers are very discouraged. They should know that with faith and patience, they can look for God to work in their present circumstance as difficult as that might be. Christians married to unbelievers should know what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, that your unbelieving spouse will probably not be led to Jesus by your words, but by your godly and loving conduct. Tragically, much of the early church did not heed God's word to keep marriages together as much as possible when married to un unbelievers. Uh, one of the great heathen complaints against the early Christians was that Christianity broke up families. One of the first charges brought against Christians was tampering with domestic relationships. Verse 17, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called to each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So no matter what your situation, married, single, divorced, widowed, married, uh, remarried, whatever, God can work in your life. Instead of thinking that you can or will walk for the Lord when your situation uh, changes, walk for the Lord in the place that you're in right now. And this is a warning about trying to undo the past in regard to relationships. God tells us to repent of whatever sin is there and then move on. If you're married to your second wife after wrongfully divorcing your first wife and become a Christian, don't think that you need to leave your second wife and go back to your first wife trying to undo the past. As the Lord has called you, walk in that place right now. Okay, black and white, very simple. So let them walk is also a warning that to beware the danger of thinking that other people have it better than you because of their different situation in life. It doesn't matter nearly as much whether you're married, single, divorced, or remarried. What matters more is an on-fire walk with Jesus Christ right now. That is the most important. Verse 18 through 20. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. 
Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. So Paul is saying that if you were circumcised when you became a Christian, that's fine. If you were not circumcised when you became a Christian, that's fine also. Those things do not matter. What matters is serving the Lord where we're at right now. So how could one become uncircumcised? Some Jews, for fear of Antiochus, made themselves uncircumcised. And First uh, Maccabees chapter 1, verse 16. Others for shame after they were gained to the knowledge of Christ, as here. Um, this was done by drawing up the foreskin with a surgeon's, uh, surgeon's instrument. <clears throat> and so... Paul's point isn't really about circumcision. It's just an example here. Even as being circumcised or uncircumcised is totally irrelevant when it comes to serving God, so is your current marital state. He could just as easily say by saying by, um, by analogy here, married, married is nothing and unmarried is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Verse 21 through 24. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is the Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So a slave can please God as a slave. He should not live his life thinking, I can't do anything for God right now, but I'm sure if I was a free man, I could, I could do a lot. Uh, he can and should serve God where he's able to right now. In saying that a slave can please God, Paul does not want any slave to think that God does not want him to be free. If he has the opportunity, he should take advantage of it. And so, do not become slaves of men. This is true not only in the regard to literal slavery, but spiritually also. We are, we are to never put, uh, to put ourselves under the inappropriate control or the influence of others. Right? Do not follow even good men slavishly. Do not say, I'm of Paul, or I'm of, of Apollos, or I'm of Calvin, or I'm of Wesley. Right? Did John Calvin redeem you? Did Wesley die for you? Who is Calvin and who is Wesley but ministers by whom you believed as the Lord gave to you? So do not surrender yourself to any leadership that you would rather follow the man than his master. I will follow anybody if he goes Christ's way, but I will follow nobody by the grace of God if he does not go in that direction. Right? We follow Christ. And this principle is going to apply across a broad spectrum, married or unmarried, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. We can seek God's best and be used by him right where we are. So marriage could be a distraction. Sorrow may become a distraction. Joy can become a distraction or the commerce or the world. Then we are to turn our back upon all those things. And so, of course, this doesn't mean that we are to continue in a sinful course or, or an occupation once we're saved. Verse 25 through 28. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So Paul's going to deal with the unmarried, whom he refers to as virgins, even though they all might not have been technically virgins, though in Christian homes they certainly should be. And so again, we are not to think Paul is any less inspired here. But because he deals with life situations that differ from person to person, he cannot and will not give a commandment. 
yet he will give inspired advice and principles. Paul, in speaking to the never married man, recommends that uh, he is to remain as he is, that is, either remaining single or remaining married. Why? Because of the present distress. Apparently, there was some kind of local persecution or problem going on in the city of Corinth. And because of that distress, Paul says that there are definite advantages to remaining single. Also, because of that distress, a married man should also remain as he is. So what is the advantage of remaining single? We've talked about it long enough now. What is this? We can easily imagine how in a time of persecution or great crisis, how much more of a burden a wife or family can be for someone committed to standing strong for the Lord. We may say, torture me and I'll never renounce Jesus. But what if we're threatened with the rape of our wife or the torture of our children? These may seem far away to us, but they're not far away to the Christians in the first century. And so what is the advantage in remaining married? At the time of great distress, your family needs you more than ever. So don't abandon your wife and children now. And so Paul's going to echo the same principle that was laid down in uh, verses 17 through 24. God can use us right where we are, and we should not be so quick to change our station in life. With the terms bound and loosed, Paul is using the vocabulary of the Jewish scribes. When a Jew in those days did not know if and how God's law applied to their situation, they would ask a scribe, and the scribe would declare them bound or loosed in regard to those particular commands. So Paul will certainly not forbid marriage, yet he's going to tell those who will get married, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Paul felt, especially for himself, that the greater advantages were to be found in being single. Yet he knows that each one has his own gift from God in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. So most significantly, Paul never implies that being married or single is more spiritual than the other state. And this was a big error in the Corinthian Christians. Verse 29 through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Right? The time is short. Some are going to criticize Paul and even declare him a false prophet because he says the time is short. But Paul is true to the heart and teaching of Jesus who told all Christians in all ages to be ready and to anticipate his return. Jesus told us all in Matthew 24 verse 44, he says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We are to be ready and to regard that time as short, not only because Jesus can return at any time, but also because it cultivates a more obedient, on-fire walk with Jesus Christ. Right? You don't want to be caught with your pants down when he returns. <laughs> so, even without considering the return of Jesus, it's worthwhile and accurate for Christians to live as if the time is short. The psalmist expressed this attitude in Psalm 39, verse 5, where it says, Indeed, you've made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. And the ancient Greek word for short is sustelo meaning contracted or rolled up as sails to be used by uh, boats or when the ship draws to the harbor. The time is short or curled up like when the sails you know, are coming into port. And so Paul is not encouraging the neglect of proper family duties, but encouraging lives as if the time is short. It means that we will not live as if our earthly family was all that mattered, but also live with an eye to eternity on heaven. 
A time is short as attitude will also not indulge the feelings and things of this world. Weeping, rejoicing, and having possessions must not get in the way of following hard after Jesus. So there is nothing solid and lasting in the world system. It is a nature to pass away. It's a folly for believers to act as though its virtues were, per- you know, its values were permanent. Verse 32 through 35. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, that not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So here, Paul simply recognizes that when a person doesn't have family responsibilities, they're more free to serve God. This was the main reason Paul considered the unmarried state preferable for himself. Paul does not say this to condemn the married person. In fact, Paul is saying this is how it should be for a married person. There's something there's something incredibly wrong if a married man does not care for how he may please his wife. There's something wrong if a married woman does not care how she can please her husband. And again, Paul's reasoning for explaining these things is not to forbid marriage, but to put it into the eternal perspective. He's not putting a leash on anybody. He's just sharing from his own heart and experience. Significantly, for Paul, the most important thing in life was not romantic love, but pleasing God. For him, he could please God better as being single. But another could please God better as being married, all according to our calling. Okay, that's part of the Christian liberty here. And so though Paul insists he doesn't want his teaching here to be regarded as a noose around anybody's neck, uh, this has happened in the church. Roman Catholics insist on celibacy for all of their clergy, even if they're not gifted to be so. Many Protestant groups will not ordain or trust the single. And so for Paul, being unmarried meant fewer distractions in serving God. Tragically, to many modern single Christians, singleness is a terrible distraction. Instead, they should regard their present unmarried state, whether it's temporary or permanent, as a special opportunity to please God. Verse 36 through 38. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. So the man Paul is referring to is the father of the young woman of the marrying uh, or man of marrying age, his virgin. The behaving improperly has nothing to do with any kind of improper or moral behavior, but with denying his daughter or son the right to marry based on the way Paul values singleness. So you'll remember in this ancient culture, a young person's parents had the primary responsibility for arranging the marriage. So based on what Paul has already taught, should a Christian father recommend celibacy to this child? And the term virgin includes both of the young sexes. And Paul says it's not wrong for a father to allow his young daughter to marry, even allowing for the desirability of singleness at the present time. And because singleness does have its benefits, Paul will recommend it not only to individuals, but also to fathers in regard to marrying off their daughters. 
And for Paul, the choice between being married and single was not a choice between good and bad, but between better and best. And for Paul, in light of the present circumstances, he regarded singleness as best, right? You could be more devoted to the Lord without those distractions. <clears throat> but one is not better than the uh, other, right? You, you, if you have a calling for being married, bloom where you're planted. That is the clear distinction. One is not more spiritual over another. Verse 39 and 40. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, of course, a widow has the right to remarry, but a Christian widow, like any Christian, is really only free to remarry another Christian, right? Only in the Lord. At the same time, Paul believes such a widow is happier if she remains as she is, that is, if she remains single. Essentially, Paul wants the widow not to remarry without carefully considering that God might be calling her to celibacy. And again, Paul will affirm celibacy not because sex itself is evil, as some of the Corinthian Christians thought. Instead, the unmarried state can be superior because it offers a person, if they are so gifted, more of an opportunity to serve God. 